0: Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cawthorn. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. Father, we're going to discover today how knowing the Heavenly Father is very personal, not just to us, but it's personal to Him, and He would like it to be personal for us as well. Some of you may have heard different Christianese phrases tossed about, like somebody needs a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and that rolls off the tongue for those who have used that phrase many times before. But we're going to unpack this passage of scripture, John 14, 1 through 15 today, and find out why that's so, so that hopefully it will mean something personal to each of us as well. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of John chapter 14. I would kind of prefer that you not follow along in your scripture today so that we can use the first century tradition of their orally producing the word to you and letting those words pour over you. So just take in these words as I read them together. John 14... Verses 1 through 15. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And when everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said, um... Lord, uh, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, But my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. And even greater works. Because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it. So that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And if you love me, obey my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, illuminate your word to us this morning, I pray. Give us the opportunity to see you so much more clearly that for us, it really does become personal. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Joy and I were led... uh, to see that movie that we had seen in the, on the big screen in the movie theater, but we saw it at home recently. And this was the story about Louis Zamperini, the great runner from Torrance, California, who wound up being an Olympic runner. And then he was drafted, he went into the military, and a plane that he was in, as they were doing a rescue, search and rescue mission, uh, the plane was in pretty bad shape to start with. I don't even think they got shot down, the plane just fell apart. <laughs> And it crashed into the ocean. And he and two other guys on the plane survived. The rest of the crew were killed. And so Louis survives for an incredible number of days in this life raft, existing on nothing but caught rainwater and a few fish that they could catch. And then there was sort of the good news, bad news scene where you can see the shadow of a ship coming over them. And he lifts one eyelid and he says, oh, good news, bad news. And they look up. The good news was they're being rescued. Bad news was it was the enemy. So they were picked up by the enemy and put into a a prisoner of war camp and then transferred from one uh, prisoner of war camp to another. And that whole story about Louis and his resolve to not give up, to not be broken, is incredible. In fact, the name of the movie is Unbroken. And this particular scene that this picture comes from was really striking to me because he was out in a railroad yard. They'd been working on the coal barges, and so they were filled with soot, as you can see here. And the one commander of the camp was just so cruel. He, had, he just had it out for Louis, probably because he knew that Louis had been sort of a famous person because he'd been in the Olympics and whatnot. And he just picked on Louis mercilessly. And finally, he got so angry that he said, pick up that piece of lumber over there. It looked like a railroad tie, huge piece of wood. And he was so weak already from malnutrition and overwork, so he could barely lift it. But he said, lift it above your head. And Louis spends all the energy he can expend just getting that piece of lumber up over his head like that. And he goes now to the guard over here. He says, if he drops it, shoot him. And you're thinking, there's no way. He can't exist with this piece of lumber over his head. He has to drop it. And he almost stumbled at one point and had to kind of do this little number a little bit. And people were thinking, oh, no, no, no. Of course, we know he lives because it's a biography, but he manages to keep it upright, and then he just stays there, and stays there, stays there. Until everybody in the theater, we're just holding our collective breath, and he has such a show of resolve that the commander almost has a public humiliation and kind of breaks down a little bit. And he cries and throws a temper tantrum, and finally, instead of having him shot, this same man with a bamboo pole just beats the tar out of Louie and leaves him, he's thinking maybe even to die out there by the railroad yard, on the ground. Another guard watches him all night long. He finally comes out of his stupor, and he's healed from all these wounds over time. But his resolve was just remarkable. And there's been another movie that's been made now by a Christian organization to take us through the rest of the story, because we find out that he goes to a Billy Graham crusade after he gets back to California and gives his heart to Christ. He had promised God in that life raft as he was floating. He made one of those life raft confessions and said, God, if you just get me through this ordeal, I promise I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. And he didn't do that right away because he went through a period of PTSD, which they knew nothing about back then. His wife did everything she could to help, but he was in bad shape for quite a while. And then finally, it was as though God just said, okay, enough, I'm going to heal you from all this past that you've been working with. And he finally saw that the only way forward was forgiveness. And remarkably, Louis took a trip back to the country, in that case, it was Japan, where he had been held as a prisoner of war and arranged for a meeting. The only one who didn't show up was that commander who had been so cruel to him. He tried to reach out to him and he gave them his forgiveness and gave his testimony, and he literally dedicated the rest of his life to sharing God's love and the reason for his ability to forgive because of Christ who forgave him. It's a remarkable story. So I start with that because I think we're going to be able to see some parallels a little bit in what's going on here as I bring out just five things in the passage that I just read for you that I think are worth highlighting. First of all, it's so simple. It's just, it stares you in the face, but it's right there from what God is telling through Jesus to his disciples, especially Thomas and Philip. Jesus is God. And we might miss that. I mean, you just might miss the so obvious kinds of stuff, but these guys didn't quite get it, and they've been walking with Jesus for quite some time at this point. And yet, Jesus has to make it abundantly plain to these guys. John of course, gets to the point much quicker than the other gospel writers there. are The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John gets right into it. Very first verse in the very first book of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Logos, Logos, the Word was Jesus Christ. And he makes that so clear right off the bat. Then later, he says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the incarnation, of course. And then don't you believe, John 14, 10, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? You can almost see Jesus starting to get much more pointed with his disciples then because Jesus is ramping up his ministry and getting ready to do the, the one act that's going to be required so that everybody can find true forgiveness. Number two, if you know Jesus, you know God. Jesus is making that abundantly clear for us too. And for those of us who've been raised in the church, we go, well, yeah, I know that. It's amazing to me how many people don't know that. We have so many questions out there from people that we might even run into on the job, in school, wherever you're surrounded, that they might not really get this. If you know Jesus, you know what God is like. Jesus says that. I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. Just believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He goes a step further and said, if you can't believe that, at least believe based on the works that I've been doing. Because clearly, only God could do the kind of works that I've been doing. And even though I am in the flesh... I'm co-equal with God. Number three, knowing God is personal. Now, this is the crux. This is where it really starts to make sense to me. Uh, Sometimes I have tried to help wrap some mic cords when we're getting ready to tear down. And there's a certain way that we like to have them done. And I have learned over time that the reason you do them a certain way is because they tend to not get tangled so that when you want to open them up again, you're not having to undo a bunch of spaghetti. But mic cords and electrical cords have a way of turning themselves into knots. And particularly if you don't know the right over-under coil thing or whatever. But knowing God is personal is kind of the one strand of cord that if you work at it for time, you know how you've done this at home? Maybe you've got a long extension cord. And you're pulling at each thing trying to find out which works and which doesn't. And most of the time it makes it worse until finally you pull on one and almost by accident, the rest of them start to look like, oh, I think this is the key chord here. If I start running this one through this hole, the rest of it's going to start. It's almost like when the Rubik's Cube is almost together. I can see it. Now I can see it. It's going to start making sense. And then pretty soon, magically, the cord is released from all the knots. Well, there's something that we need to release ourselves from, and I'll talk to you about a moment. This is something that's very pervasive in our society today. It's a lack of connection. We have more ways of connecting with one another than we ever had, and yet we feel disconnected. I wonder why. And there's an answer to that. There's something that's a solution to the problem of feeling disconnected and that there's that ache to have human interaction. It's called the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, because God wants us not only to be connected with him, but he makes it available to us so that we can become connected with other people. And when we understand the one thing from this passage that we looked at, it becomes the one cord that you tug on, that God wants a personal connection with us. That's the one strand that starts to make you unravel all of the other knots that we create for ourselves when we're trying to figure God out apart from having a personal connection. You can go through any number of Bible studies, and if you're lacking this one cord, if you're lacking that one piece of the puzzle, it's not going to make sense, and you're just going to keep wrapping yourselves into knots unless you understand that God wants a personal connection with us. One of the reasons people fear, and they'll actually say this in surveys, the the reason they fear taking a step of faith and saying, well, I'm going to trust that this supreme being, this higher power that's out there is God, and he did actually create me for a purpose— I fear connecting with him because I fear that he's going to ask me to give up stuff. I'm going to lose my autonomy. I don't want to give him my heart because I don't want my heart broken because I'm going to have to give up this relationship, which I kind of know in the back of my mind is probably not one that's going to honor him anyway, or this particular hobby, which I know is taking too much time away from what he wants me to do. All the stuff that I have made something that I think is going to give my life meaning, I'm afraid he's going to take that away. My life won't have any meaning anymore. I fear losing autonomy. Well, guess what? I'm going to use a quote from C.S. Lewis because he says it so eloquently. To love at all, to love anything or anybody, is to become vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. But then look what he says next. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So he's saying basically, hey, if you're afraid of giving up your autonomy to somebody else, if you lock your heart up, You're just going to have a case around it. You're going to build your own coffin around your heart, and it will become unbreakable and impenetrable, and you won't know what true love really looks like or feels like. So here's the deal. This is a truism. If you avoid knowing God personally to try to stay in control of your life, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose control of your life anyway. Because the harder we try to control our own lives, the more elusive it gets and the more knots we create for ourselves. Here's a corollary point. I love this one. You can't have any relationship without losing at least some control over your life. Men, have you not, when you got married to that woman, have you not found that the closet space you thought you once deserved shrinks? Have you noticed that when your bride comes home and she starts filling up the closet space that it seems to be out of proportion to what you imagine it to be? Have you also noticed that sometimes we men do things for our spouses that we never dreamed that we would do, like getting up in the middle of the night after we've had kids and running upstairs to be able to take care of that child's throw up because they got sick in the middle of the night, and your wife says, oh, can you tackle this one? There are things that we do. You give up control over your life, not only when you get married, but also if you have kids. Those of us who've had kids, we understand that. You're constantly giving up things for your children's sake, and isn't it worth it? Because anytime you open your heart to somebody, as much as they step on that heart or hurt your heart, it's still a rewarding thing. It's still worth it. Or how about a pet? This pet just came in to our extended family. It is a new grand dog for us. Unfortunately, this grand dog lives in South Carolina, so we've only seen it long distance through pictures and videos, but uh, Bernie is pretty sharp-looking, little golden. And yet... All of a sudden, they're realizing that, oh, as cute a little furball as this is, Bernie has needs. Like going outside often and trying to potty potty train Bernie. And sometimes that doesn't work out so well. So somebody has to go and clean up after Bernie because they're trying to figure that stuff out. And yet, they're opening their hearts to this little animal. Why is that? Because it's rewarding to have a personal connection. And so we always give up autonomy no matter what the relationship is. So why people think that we can reserve our heart and keep it from having a personal relationship with God it's so counterintuitive to what we might expect that the God who loves us enough to make everything for us and for our enjoyment and wants to have a relationship for eternity, we're not going to lose anything by giving our heart to Him. We're going to gain everything. Number four, no one can enter the kingdom except through Jesus. Now this is something that if you don't have that first strand to pull on, that Jesus is God, and that God wants a personal relationship with us, this can sound like a demand, and we might chafe at a demand. We might think, well, who is he to say, I am the only way? You can only enter through me. Doesn't that sound exclusive? It might if we don't understand God's heart, and how do we get to know that? By looking at the Son, because he is the Father. He and the Father are in one. If you understand what he's like, this really becomes an invitation to know him better because he loves us. No one can enter the kingdom except through Jesus. He is the way. He is the way. And that's not demanding. It's an invitation. He'll never force himself into anybody's life. He opens himself to them, but you can only actually have a connection with somebody else if it comes from the inside and if it's an open heart and open hands to that other person. And he does that. He's opening himself to us through Christ, arms wide open, in his case, literally. But he doesn't demand it because he allows us to take that step of faith. He's not just a help for us to find a job or a school or a spouse or forgiveness that seems elusive sometimes. He's not somebody that we can say, okay, God, I need your help on this one. I've been doing pretty good in all these other areas of my life, but right now I need your help on this one. So if you could please help me find that job because I've been without a job for a while, so I'd really appreciate that if you could help me with that. Or I need to find the right school. Some of you have made that choice already. I'm grateful to see that some of our grads are locking in on what their next steps might be. Or I need a spouse so badly, God, can you help me with this one? Or I'm having a really difficult time forgiving. Please help me with that. He's not a help. He's the reason. He's the reason why we have a job. I and the other people who are gifted in this congregation to help teach and train in righteousness and do the things and unpacking the word and all that stuff, Paul tells us that we are here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I was reading an article last week that said some of us need to apologize to our congregations for making it sound like you all exist to support my ministry. (laughs) That's so wrong on so many levels. I'm here to support your ministry. I'm here to help equip you because of this workplace ministry, the places that you go and the people you see and the people that you minister to every day of your week. That's where ministry really happens. And so I'm here to actually support you, hoping to show that with God, there's a reason to do everything you do out there in the workplace and at home. He is the truth as well. Some people chafe at that these days because they think everything is relative, but He really is the truth. And Jesus' teaching, because it's truthful, is so much more important than feelings. So much more important. If I've got something that I want to have validated, where do I go? Well, I don't go to my feelings because my feelings lie to me. I know my dark heart, and I know that sometimes my feelings will tell me something is good. Well, if it, you know, if it uh, feels so good, how can it be so wrong? It happens all the time. Jesus' teaching is so much more important than our feelings, and it's more important than others' opinions. It's easy to find people to gather around ourselves to make us feel good about some decision we've made if we want to validate ourselves. But sometimes God's word goes clearly against all five of those people that you have in your inner circle that's been telling you, oh, no, it's fine. I'll give you one example that's prevalent today. Forgiveness. Matthew 16, 14, or 6, 14 through 15. The if in those passages goes both ways. The first passage says, if you forgive... As God in Christ has forgiven you, then God will forgive you as well. But the second is likened unto it. If you fail to forgive, what do, you think God, what do you think God's going to do? Well, he's not going to forgive you. How is that possible? Because we haven't learned what it means to absorb grace so we can't give grace to others. If we're not allowing mercy to pour over us, we're not going to be merciful to other people. And if we can't forgive because of all that God has done for us through Christ... We have nothing to work with, if goes both ways. So it's easy for me to think, well, my feelings say I'm having a hard time with that, and so I just can't forgive right now. I feel too badly about this. I've been hurt too deeply. Well, God's Word says differently. God's Word doesn't mince words. It says, hey, you need to forgive. It's for your own freedom. If you don't forgive, you're the one who keeps heaping toxicity into your own life. That other person that you haven't forgiven yet, they may not have been phased by the way you're feeling right now. So it's not for them. You need to forgive to unburden your own heart and to take that shell from around it because you're burying it in the coffin of your own making. The example which I saw, and I'm going to bring it back to that movie that I alluded, Unbroken, with Louis Zamperini, he understood that the if goes both ways. Louis figured out that he had to move forward by forgiving those who had captured, captured him and made his life miserable For months. Almost killed him. He had to forgive. And in so doing, he felt that his whole life was been, had been lifted, transformed, given a new sense of purpose. And that's true for Louis, and it's true for us as well. So how could Jesus be so demanding if he says, you're supposed to forgive this way? Why is that? Because for Jesus, think about it. Think of all he did for forgiveness. Jesus personally took our burden off of us because of what he did for us on the cross. For him, forgiveness is personal. God chose personally to take care of the sin need because of Jesus and what He did for us. So it's very personal to Him. It's not some concept that goes out into the ether. This was extremely personal for Him. And yet, as He was hanging on that cross, He could say, even to those people who were responsible physically for putting Him up there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And He is the way. This seems exclusive today, too, for some and yet it's an invitation. He says, no, no, I want to make this personal. Invite me into your life, and I'll show you the way. The only way to have a personal relationship with God is to get to know Jesus Christ so that you can fully embrace his heart and understand what he's like. He desires to know us personally. Let's say, this is totally hypothetical because everybody knows I'm great with directions, and I never get lost. (laughs) Let's say that in a couple of months... Joy and I are over in Scotland on our sabbatical, and we're trying to figure out how to stay left and drive on the opposite side of the road, and we're following our GPS or map. We didn't have a GPS the first time we were there. It's a challenge. Uh, I found some roundabouts that took us by the same village three times for some reason. (laughs) Strange the way the roads are laid out that way to take you by a village several times in a row. But let's say that I should happen to get lost and I pull over onto a little pullout somewhere and I'm trying to study my phone or a map or something, trying to figure out, but how do I get there? I know where I'm trying to get to. I don't know how to. And let's say that a nice, friendly Scotsman hikes by and he says, oh, I can see that you're having a problem here. Um, Would you mind telling me where you're trying to get? And if we said, well, yes, this is the address and it's over in this village. It's about three miles over that way, I think. He says, oh, yeah, I grew up there. I know exactly where the place is. He says, I tell you what, uh, I'm just on a wee stroll, a walkabout, and I would like to just get in the car with you, and I'll show you how to get there because I, it's right in my old stomping grounds. Would you like that? Well, yeah, of course. I'm going to invite that guy to get right in my back seat or maybe put, one of my, put my spouse in the back seat, and he can front, get in the front seat. <laughs> Sorry, Joy. Get in the back seat. And then this guy is my map. I don't need a map. Why? Because he's, he knows the area. He knows the way to where I'm going. So he can say, turn right up here. Oh, that's good. Yeah, great, great, great. Now I'll go at the roundabout and take the second exit over there. Oh, that's great. Yes, marvelous, marvelous. And he takes us right there to where we need to be. But if we fail to say that, and if we say, well, you're awfully pushy, why would you be trying to get into my vehicle? I distrust your motives. We'll find our own way there, thank you very much. What are we doing to ourselves? We're missing an opportunity for somebody to come and get us where we wanted to get all along. Now, here's the thing. If we understand that first strand that unravels all the rest of it, that God loves us, he wants to have a personal relationship with us, and he wants to get in the driver's seat so that he can take us where he knows we need to be so that he can get us the best satisfaction for the longest period of time Why would we not want to invite him into our lives? That's what unravels all the rest of this. Instead of making it sound like he's demanding and mean and controlling, we think, God, I need you in my life. I want those boundaries that you're establishing for me, even though I know it's going to create a little problem here and there, even though I'm going to give up some things along the way, because giving up our autonomy is a dying to self. And yet, the rewards are so much greater than anything we could create for ourselves. For example, thinking relationally again, since this is all about personal connections, let's say that somebody is a real jock, and they they live for football and golf and baseball and soccer, and they watch ESPN and ESPN2 and ESPN3 and 4, they're always talking about sports and reading about sports, and they've got stats coming out of their ears, And he meets a really attractive young lady. Now, what would be for him to try to woo her and get into her heart? What would it be like for that guy to say, now, if we've got any chance together, you need to memorize the stats for the Tigers baseball team. You need to find out the difference between a hole in one and a touchdown. And you need to start figuring out what the distance should be be between the seven iron and the pitching wedge and why I should use one in a different situation like that And you need to find out that Tiger Woods' last name has an S at the end. It's not singular. Thank you very much. And if you can do all those things, maybe we'll have a chance together. Now, do you think she's going to swoon and say, oh, I just love it when you talk sports to me that way? (laughs) I don't think so either. If he really wants to know her, what's he going to do? He's going to find out what makes her tick. He's going to say, what are you interested in? Oh, you like poetry? I know nothing about poetry. So he goes to the library and he checks out or goes online and finds out some poetry and he thinks okay it's weird but hey I'm willing to learn some poetry if it's going to get into this girl's heart because I think she's worth it if he wants to watch uh, the British baking show with her some evening and find out that there's a lot of drama in which flour you use to make certain kind of scones (laughs) he's going to do that thing why because he wants to get into the girl's heart he's going to open himself up and find out what makes her tick So that's what, if we think about it in both ways, from God's direction looking toward us and us looking toward God. God has already done that with us. He came from heaven to earth. He's lived in every way that we've lived. He's tempted in every way that we've been tempted, so says the word about Jesus. He knows who we are. He knows what makes us tick. He has done everything possible to show us that he understands us fully. And he still woos us. He does things to us to let us know just how much he loves us, which is why we should want to start finding out what makes him tick. And in return, how do we do that? How do we find out what God's heart is like? What does he appreciate? I want to find out what he appreciates. Read the red letters in the New Testament. That's the stuff that Jesus said. Like the old DC Talk song, there is love in the red letters. All that happened because we start to see God's heart made really apparent to us through Jesus Christ. If we want to find out what makes God's heart tick, get to know Jesus Christ. It's personal with him. Number five, we can do as Jesus did by asking for God's will. Does that mean, I know that the adult, uh, or the college and career class looked at this a couple, three weeks ago, way back, way back when, long time ago. uh, They looked at this particular passage and said, does that mean that we can just ask God literally for anything? But God, I really like this particular individual. Can I ask you for this person to work out with me as my life mate? And he might say, that's not in my will. But I ask you in Jesus' name. I mean, I put in Jesus' name at the end of that. If I ask you for a new car, a new car, I said it in Jesus' name, won't you give that to me? Should I wake up tomorrow and expect to see one in my driveway? That's not what he's talking about here. To ask something in Jesus' name means that we're lined up with his will, and therefore our request comes with authority. But in context, look at everything Jesus has been doing. What's his purpose? He's been coming so that we can understand how to be reconciled to God and how to be forgiven and to become agents of reconciliation. So anything we ask in Jesus' name is going to be something that we already know makes God tick. Because we've gotten to know him through Jesus Christ. If you move Jesus out of the equation and we have our mindset of God as the great genie in a lamp, then we can say, I'm rubbing the lamp, I'm reading the Bible, I grab this verse, I'm going to say, God, give me a $250,000 a year job in Jesus' name. Not the way it works. But if he says, okay, what makes me tick? What does my life resonate with? Uh, What brings me satisfaction. Well, it's to know that more people are coming to know me. So if you say, God, in Jesus' name, I would really love to be a winsome example to that neighbor of mine who really needs to know you better. Could you help me become a witness to them? Oh, you better believe God's going to want to answer that because it's lining up with what makes him tick. Matthew 26:39. If it's possible, who said this? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus said that. There are certain things that I prayed for that I said, oh, God, man, I would really prefer not to have to go through this. This is going to be a relational storm, and I just want to hightail it out of here. Whatever I could do to get as far away from this storm as possible, I would like not to have to go through this storm. And he says, I understand, but you have to go through the storm. And he's gotten me through the storm. And I come out the other side and I say, okay, I get it. You were with me in the storm and you got me through it stronger on the other side, but you didn't remove it because that wasn't your will. But if not, Jesus says, your will surpasses my will. That's what it means to ask for God's will, to ask in Jesus' name. Because sometimes we'll ask him for stuff and his answer is no. Because he knows better what we need down the road. How could somebody pray this way? How, how could somebody pray... Uh, in such a selfless way to say, okay, God, I've got this relative in the hospital. It looks like they might not make it. They might be dying. But we know that you love them more than anybody could possibly. And so if it's their time to go to heaven and if it's going to keep them from suffering, I'm okay. I'm okay. Either way, if you heal them and bring them back, man, I'm, I'm all for that. I would love for that to happen. But if you know them well enough to know that their suffering is just about at an end, I trust you with their life. How can they pray that way? How can you pray, okay, God, I'm going to be obedient to you and go into this situation, but it might not go well for me? It's possible that I might be hated. Other people might not agree with what I'm sharing, and yet I'm willing to abide by that because it's your will. And so if this can be eliminated, great, but if not, I'm still okay with whatever happens because I trust you. How can people pray that way? It's because God's personal. It's because he takes everything we do personally, and he's trying to strive to do everything he can to get our attention so that we can open up to him for eternity, not just for this earth. And I have to ask, this is something that you, with a message like this, how can you have a preacher not ask this question at the end of the sermon? Do you know God personally? And some people today might think, well, you're getting kind of personal, aren't you? That's kind of the point. That's kind of the point of this whole passage is that God is saying, yes, I want to introduce myself to you. Let me do so through my son, Jesus Christ, because he's showing you my heart. He's in the Father. I'm in him. We're one. We're one and the same. If you know Jesus, you do know who I'm like. So do you know Jesus? And if so, will you accept what his will is for you in your life? Let's pray together. Father, there are certain things that... In my life anyway, I feel like I've read these passages so many times that it's easy to sort of gloss over them and to feel like, yeah, 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 I've heard this one again. And yet, through your Holy Spirit, somehow you have a way of revealing new things, new insights to us, and you have a way of probing our hearts, and I pray that you'll do that, that even through these words today, you will have probed some hearts so that people would be more open to what it is you're asking for us to do in response to this message. And Father, we do want to know you personally. You're for us. He who has been set free by Christ is truly free. They're free indeed. And I pray that people will get that, that they'll understand that you're not an autocrat who's looking to make our lives miserable by telling us a lot of things that we can't do, but you're a God who loves us enough to send your only son in our place to pay the penalty that only you could pay so that we could open up to you and find out what makes your heart tick. I pray that we'll do that, that we'll find out what brings you satisfaction, and that we'll live in that space because that means it's going to pour over into our lives and we'll have satisfaction in return. Be personal in our lives as we personally walk in step with you, I pray in Jesus' name.